This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Charlie Harari Show. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. This week, I had the opportunity to sit in um, for Buck Sexton on his show on Friday. Spoke about a whole bunch of things that I think you may enjoy. We spoke about terrorism and how to beat the war on terrorism, how to change our ideology and what it means to fight for something you believe in. We spoke about the Republican National Convention that's taking place next week, Donald Trump, the Never Trump movement, his choice of vice president. We spoke about one of the best bits of advice that I've ever gotten from a partner in terms of uh, how you have to listen to your voice and a lot of other things that I think you may enjoy. Hope you listen to it. And here's the show. The Buck Sexton Show. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. And good afternoon, everybody. Charlie Harari here filling in for Buck. Great to be with you. What an honor to be back sitting in Buck's chair. What an honor for me to be able to speak to his awesome audience. Team Buck, great to be with you. So much going on in the world. I, I can't believe like what one Thursday can bring into the news cycle. I came in yesterday going, wow. You know, everything seems to be sort of going in a certain direction and then explosion. So much happening yesterday, so much happening around the world. Of course, we're going to talk about what was going on in Nice last night and the, the Bastille Day and the terrorist attack over there. The Republican National Convention is coming up next week. Lots of news coming out of that, especially Donald Trump's vice president pick. This is also the anniversary of what is maybe the worst deal in the history of the United States State Department, and that is the Iranian deal. And so we're going to talk about just how great the anniversary year was for making a deal with the devil. All coming up right now. Let's go jumping right away to last night. And for those who were, unless you've been living in a cave, you know what's happening. Last night, during the celebrations of Bastille Day, um, Bastille Day, just for those that are not aware, is like the Independence Day for uh, the French people. It actually celebrates the storming of the Bastille prison in Paris during the French Revolution of 1789. It is the country's biggest public holiday, and there were celebrations as if it was July 4th around the entire country. But in one small city on the Riviera on the south side of France, in um, Nice, those, those celebrations turned unfortunately deadly as a man named Mohammed Lahoujel Bahoulel, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, a 31-year-old uh, French-born from Tunisia, uh, decided to turn it into a day of horror. And he took his 25-ton unmarked truck at a high speed for more than 100 meters along the promenade and literally mowed people over. Um, I'm not sure if, the, if we have a, 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 the, the sound on this, but uh, it was just a heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching thing to look at on the, on the news. You see people literally running out of the way. You see um, kids being thrown to the ground, screaming pandemonium panic. 
just just heart wrenching. And then afterwards, got out and shot at people, and was ultimately brought down by the French police. Latest reports are about 84 people dead, 202 injured, 54 people I think are critically injured. And the greatest, I think, you know, shock to all this is that nobody saw this coming. No one knew who he was, you know, connected to. Nobody sort of was able to protect against this. And people just unfortunately just uh, went to this event to celebrate and ended up coming back in, in a funeral. And two people actually I know I was seeing this morning, um, a father and son from America. So this terrible picture, this one of you saw this online a picture of a dad and his son in the Little League. You see this thing? Dad, Just Google this. A dad and his son in the Little League uniform. Just They went out there, and um, and, they're, and, they're, and they were a part of the, the deceased. It's such a horrible, horrible thing. And some of the eyewitness accounts are just so scary. I just read a couple of you today just to give honor to what happened over there. Um, one eyewitness said, I'm a niece, and I can't describe the situation. It's awful. Dead bodies are everywhere. People are being killed in front of my eyes. This has to have been planned. One of them said, um, at, the, at the time we saw a white truck, a six-ton truck, I guess he didn't realize how big it was even, going 60 to 70 kilometers an hour. He saw the guy behind the wheel, and he was headed, and he rolled onto the pavement. Then after two meter, meters, he saw people lying on the ground, and he goes, and I saw a small child hit the earth. Um, another reporter said there are people in blood, f- fully wounded. He drove over everyone. Everybody is bleeding. There are loads of people injured without a doubt. And, you know, you hear this and um, it's, it's, it's heart-wrenching. I mean, it's heart-wrenching, you know. I, and, and innocent people are celebrating their own freedom of independence. I think about our country. I got to tell you, on July 4th, I was um, – I really did. I put, in, I put in a prayer July 4th in the morning just to keep our country safe, just to allow people to celebrate our freedom without the fear of a terrorist attack or uh, being just sort of you know randomly killed because of the ideology of somebody else. And when you think about this event, you know if if you just sort of take a second, and and now when the shock sort of like goes away, and if you're uh, you know how many times can we look at the news? And we've probably been doing it. I know you have. I know I have. We've been listening to it probably nonstop and since last night. And the reports, the reports, and it sort of settles in. How do you feel? Like, how do you feel now? Do you feel as if, like, we're winning this and this was a, an aberration to the rule? You feel like we got this under control and this war on terror that has been rearing its head over the past, what, more than a year? I mean, the West is getting it in a year. We're seeing it in France and in Belgium and in America just 18, 12, 18, 24 months ago, minus the 9-11 attacks. But if you really were paying attention around the Middle East, to places like Israel, to places like other areas in the Middle East, this is happening for years. They have been telling us for years that they're coming after our families, they're coming after our loved ones, they're going to disrupt our sort of norm of how we live our lives. And how do you feel we're doing? You feel like we got it? You feel like we got this under control? You feel like but for this aberration, we've got the war on terror? Or do you feel like we have no idea what we're doing? Yes, we're stopping attacks. Yes, our government is working their hardest. But do you feel like globally, nationally, we're winning? We'll get this. This is under our control. There are some people that may get through the the barracks, but outside that, we got it. And I got to tell you, I don't feel like that at all. I don't feel like that. At, I feel like we have no idea. I feel like, but for the grace of God, this, there, there, it should be worse. I feel like when I see this, I'm like, really? 
I, I'm almost expecting it. I'm almost at a point where I can't walk some places because I almost, in my back of my mind, will say, really, who's thinking of terrorism here? I, I wonder to myself, how, do we, how are we missing this? What are we doing? And, and to make it worse... I, I almost think this is like an insult to injury. You know, the president of France came out, you know, President Holland came out and said, this is a terrorist attack and, um, and, and, you know, we're treating it as such. And I waited for our president to say something. And this is what we got out of the, out of the president. We got the following. Um, we feel like this can be a potential act of terrorism, right? This appear, here's what it says. Obama contends it. Let me tell you, let me sort of give you the quote from Barack Obama. This, uh, it, we were connected, of course, to what appears to be a horrific terrorist attack. He can't even come out and say that there was an actual terrorist attack. It appears to be. You get this feeling of constant backtracking, constant apologizing. It's like almost like a lesson. Like, guys, don't jump to conclusions. Stop it. All you people, put your guns down. Relax. Go back to your homes. Don't, don't, don't be rash. This may not be terrorism. Let's just spend time thinking about it, and we'll connect the dots. And if it is, we'll come back and sort of pontificate to you about what it means to sort of be inclusive a little later on. You feel like we're missing it. So why are we missing it for? So, you know, two weeks ago, I had a conversation that really opened my eyes to how we beat the war on terror. We are losing the war on terror right now. We are. We could be stopping it a little bit. We could be preventing it from worse. We could be saving people's lives by stopping certain terrorists from doing what they're doing. But all in all, the war, which is the war of ideology, that's really what it is, right? If this guy was not connected, if he wasn't trained in Syria, but he was following Al-Qaeda and following ISIS and he was one of their fans and he bought into that ideology and he picked up his you know, driver's license and keys, then that's an ideological war. Right, he wasn't trained. He just bought it. He bought the speeches. He bought all these imams that are saying death to death to death to. If if this is what this really is, this lone terrorism that's happening in San Bernardino and Orlando, where people are buying the ideology of our enemies, then then this is an ideological war. This isn't just a war that was in the 1950s or 60s. This isn't 1700s. We don't line up and go at each other in some field. We're not sitting around with borders and our troops go and meet each other. This is a war of individuals that believe in something and wherever they are, activate that belief to their own physical detriment. This guy knew he was dying. They all know they're dying. I saw a quote yesterday where one of the terrorists that recently killed somebody in Israel, last week there was a terrorist attack, if you remember, and you were following a father was driving home. A father was just driving home. I mean, he, got, he wasn't even a soldier. Come on. And he's driving home. And he's got like six kids. And a terrorist jumps over a divider in the middle of a highway and just shoots him dead. Like, come on. And then afterwards, they, the cops obviously stopped him and killed him. And they, the Israel tried to prevent a large funeral from taking place. Obviously so. And the... And the response that they got from his relatives, that they could never, they were not prepared to keep the funeral on the wraps because to them, that funeral, to his quote, was, and if you just Google this, you can see this, it was, it's the wedding with Allah. That's his way of, that's his wedding. He's now going to meet Allah. He's now, he's accomplished. What he's, this is his words. How can I stop someone from coming to a wedding? So the funeral of the guy that took the lives out of an innocent individual is really a wedding of celebration. This is not a war about guns. 
We need guns. We need bullets. We need arms. But that's not what this war is. This is a war of ideology. And who, who, what kind of sides stand for what? And we are losing it. Why? We'll talk about it when we come back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. What's up, Team Buck? Have you ever tried a Casper mattress? They are incredible. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at an incredibly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and the perfect amount of bounce. Time Magazine named it as one of the best inventions of 2015. In fact, it's now the most awarded mattress of the decade. You get free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada, and you can try it free for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. It's made right here in America. All you have to do is go to casper.com slash buck. That's www.casper.com slash buck. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com backslash buck. Terms and conditions apply. This is an incredible mattress at a fantastic price. You can get it now via this deal. Check it out. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. And welcome back to the show. Charlie Harari here sitting in for Buck, an honor to be sitting in his chair, Buck Sexton Show, talking about terrorism and how terrorism today is not a fight that was once what what fighting was, right? Armies against armies and divi- even commandos against command. It's not even like guerrilla warfare against, you know, the larger army of what we were once told as how warfare went around. No, no, it's different now. Now it's a fight of ideology. Now it's a fight of can my ideas seep into the consciousness of individual residents so that they, they can become inspired terrorists on their own, wreak havoc on other people because they believe in the nonsense that I get to put through whatever waves I am using, the internet or whatever it is that I'm going. This is an ideological war. And unless we identify it for what it is, we're going to lose it. Unless we realize that the, re- the biggest problem that we have with the Nice attack is that nobody knew who the guy was. That's the problem. Because that means no one knows who the next guy is. Unless we can figure out who these people are, what are we going to do? Just lock everybody up? That's not, that, that doesn't work. That's like fun for three seconds to pretend, and then you get to like real life, and you go, hey, that's not working, because you got to figure out the root of the problem. So what is the root of the problem? So i got to tell you, you know, you get information and wisdom in the greatest ways, and I'll tell you where I got my, my bit from. I think from the experts in this matter, the Israelis, right? If you look at one country who's been dealing with this since their inception, it's the Israelis. Right now, we're getting terrorism in America right now, and it's new to us. Is not new to Israelis. You go to Israel for five minutes and you know that's a country that's been dealing with this. Literally this. They pretend it's other things. They pretend it's whatever it is. But it's just the same thing. It's terrorism. Doing since they started. So two weeks ago or three weeks ago already, I was running a mission to Israel. I do this twice a year. It's a lot of fun. I take about 100 people to Israel for like a week 
of nonstop touring. It's awesome. We go north, south. It's just it's incredible to be able to see the country, see the people, hear the stories, speak to the soldiers, speak to just the regular cab drivers. The cab drivers in Israel are like smarter than most politicians that you know. That just that's how the country is. And the final weekend, the Friday night, we had anticipated to take our guys to the old city of Jerusalem. And the old city of Jerusalem on Friday night, Friday night is Shabbat, and that's where thousands of people from all over the city come in to pray by the Western Wall. We wanted our guys to see that. It's an incredible experience uh, for any nation and any religion just to see thousands of people get gathering together to pray. And Thursday morning... There were terrorist attacks. If you remember, a few weeks ago, we had that terrible, it was the last day of Ramadan, and then that poor girl, do you remember the story in Hebron? That poor girl was, so the terrorist jumped into her room and stabbed her, and then the, the father that I was telling you about. So my so my my uh, my colleague said, listen, is it safe? Do you want to take 100 American and, and you know South African and Australian men and Canadian men to the old city of Jerusalem? You know, the city of Jerusalem has within it all these different populations, and it's the last day of Ramadan. This isn't just a regular Friday night. This is it. This is if there's ever a a risk, it happens now. Do you want to go in? And I'm like, yeah, but I can't not. I mean, like, this is what we got to do. So we arranged a meeting with the mayor of Jerusalem, a guy named Nir Barakat, incredible individual. He's actually an entrepreneur that was that invested in companies that was doing antivirus software way before we, people knew about it. Sold his company. And went into politics. Almost like you know, Mike Bloomberg took a dollar from New York City. He gets paid one shekel a year for his work, and he's really turned Jerusalem. You know, really, it, it, he's really brought it to where it could be. So we went, we meet with him, and I said, "Listen, you know, I, I got a huge delegation of people. I got lots of Americans. I got a lot of people from all over. They, you know, I can't just bring people into unsafe environments. I I, I want them to see Jerusalem on a Friday night. I think it's a very uh, wholesome, good you know experience. But I'm not going to put my people at risk." And he says, I think you should go. I said, really? He goes, yeah. I go, how come? He goes, because Jerusalem is one of the safest cities in the world. I'm like, no, come on. He goes, no. He, and he quoted me the crime stats, and he compared the crime stats to New York, Chicago, Washington. Do you know that Jerusalem has less murders per 100,000 people than almost every city? I'm like, how is this possible? Like, how, how do you have the threat of terrorism under your nose? I mean, we're talking about towns of people that are, that are literally out to get you how are you able to keep it so safe so he goes to me go tonight and you'll understand so i listen to him i take the, the guys there it's incredible incredible thousands of people show up nothing happens everything is safe i come back in and i meet with one of his advisors and i say what did he mean when he said take my guys into the old city of jerusalem on the most dangerous night of the year and I and I'll understand. And here's what his, his advisor told me. And I got to tell you, this sums up why I think Israel is doing such a service for the world. And this sums up really why I think we, not all of us, some of us are losing the fight on terrorism. He said that may, his advice, his aide said to me that if you want to understand Mayor Barakat's philosophy on terrorism, it's that. You don't win the war on terror by being defensive. You can't win the war on terror for being on defense. Do you know why? Because there's no identified enemy, right? If you're on defense, you know what that means? That you're wrong. 
right? If someone's out there saying that you're the worst and you're the, you're, you're evil and you're the, the cause of all horrible things in the world, right? If someone is out there preaching hate against you and then you play defense, you know what that says to the people around? The guy's right. He's right. And for years, I guess you got lucky by being the ones in charge. But finally, someone said something. He goes, you don't win the war on terror for being on the defense. You know how you win a war on terror? goes by living prouder with your ideals. You got to elevate above it. You got to articulate your ideas and live your ideals much bigger so that people around look and go, wow, that's how we could live. Wait, those guys are screaming in the back. That's how we should be. You can protect yourself. You can border it. If you ever go around Israel, they're not sitting around hoping that nobody blows something up. They're watching every border. They've got, they've, got, they've got technology that we never even thought of, and they're not sitting on their own, but that's not how they're living. They are living with their ideals, loud and proud. And he wanted me to go into that old city because what he was saying to me is that I want you to see that Jerusalem is Jerusalem, not because the Jews of Jerusalem are living in fear on Ramadan night. They're Jews of Jerusalem because they're articulating that we're here in this country and it's ours and we're here and we want to go pray and we want to be connected to our God and we're going to live with those ideals. And when you live with your ideals of strength, the other side sees it and it sucks a little bit out of them. When we come back, we're going to talk about just what that means for Israel and more importantly, what that means for the United States and how we, maybe, each and every one of us can help win this war on terror. It's all coming up. When we come back, you listen to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Charlie Harari. The Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Show. Welcome back to the show. Charlie Harari here filling in for Buck Sexton talking about the war on terror as an ideological war and how if you look over to the state of Israel, you'll see a lot of their advances in how the country is dealing with terrorism is not by the by the lack of terrorism. There's terrorism there every single day, unfortunately, more than there is in any other country in the world. We just don't we don't hear about it because it stops becoming news when you know someone dies in Israel. Unfortunately, it doesn't re- reach the papers, but it happens very frequently there. It's because they understand that the war is an ideological war, and they have are been able in many cases to articulate why they're actually there. And I've seen this because I've gone to Israeli uh, um, army bases. I've spoken to soldiers. I've spoken to residents. I've spoken to cab drivers. It fascinates me. Terrorism is going to be is. And will be the issue that can define our generation. If you're living in the world and and expect to be living for the next 20 to 40 years, which I hope is everybody listening, you will and I will be part of this war, whether we like it or we don't. Well, we can't hide. We can't we can't run. This is it. The game is over. It's not happening in Israel. It's not happening in Turkey. It's not happening in Egypt. It's not happening in Syria. It's happening everywhere. It's happening in Nice. It's happening in Belgium. It's happening in 
San Bernardino. It's not even like it happened in like the capital. It's not even happening at the city centers. We are talking about an ideological war that is being cast and waved on the American way of life. And that war needs to be responded to, of course, with arms, of course, with military strategy, but with ideology. And when you go to some of the streets in Israel, you will find that they've articulated why they're there. It's the homeland of the Jewish people. They're back and they want to be there. And the kids know it. The parents know it. The soldiers know it. They all know it. And when you have an ideology that is strong, it rises above the terror. And yes, they are dealing with terror, but the the population is united against it. Even the Arab population. I've spoken to so many Arabs that are there that are, they've, they've bought in. They've bought in. They've literally bought into the concept of a multicultural Jerusalem, and they are they, they they disassociate themselves with so much of the terrorism there because they see the excitement happening out of their Jewish residents, and they're saying this is the right way to do it. They're not on defense. They're not upset. They're not apologizing for being their homeland. They're not walking around and saying they're not sitting up and going, "Hey guys, uh, it's it, it appears to be, I think, but no, it could be terrorism." Let's 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 parse words for an hour so that nobody makes anyone's feelings hurt. Are you kidding me? They gotta live their lives, but they see a strong people with an ideology that they stand for, with a country that they're proud of, and they and they respect it. Is it dealing with it completely? Of course not. Are there still terrorism? Yeah. Are they worried? Absolutely. But does it change the way the country is responding to it? Yes. It brings in a certain amount of, of, of nationalism. Every, it's unbelievable. You see some of the people there. They're not soldiers, but they're unified to purpose. What's going on over here? I got to tell you something. You know, I got to tell you, there's a clip that I saw. There's a clip that I saw on Homeland. You may have seen this before. When, when Homeland did this, it became popular. But I want to play it for you again. Anyone who hasn't watched Homeland, Homeland is like an incredible show. And in the beginning, I think, of season four or season five, Peter Quinn, one of the CIA operatives, was brought back to the CIA for a debriefing of his time in Syria and in time, his time in the Middle East. And they asked him questions about what was going on with the radical Muslims and how he's dealing with them. And let's listen to the exchange that took place on Homeland and tell me if you feel that there's a piece of this exchange that rings a little true to what's happening today. You said a program should be renewed. I'm asking, is our strategy working? What strategy? Tell me what the strategy is. I'll tell you if it's working. See, that right there is the problem because they, they have a strategy. They're gathering right now in Raqqa by the tens of thousands hidden in the civilian population, cleaning their weapons, and they know exactly why they're there. Why is that? They call it the end times. What do you think the beheadings are about? The crucifixions in Dea Hafer, the revival of slavery, you think they make it up? It's all in the book. Look, the only book they ever read, they read it all the time, they never stop. They're there for one reason and one reason only, to die for the caliphate and usher in a world without infidels. That's their strategy, and it's been that way since the 7th century. So do you really think that a few special forces teams are going to put a dent in that? that that's it. The strategy. There's a strategy. Th- that's how it is. 
It's not all Muslims. I don't believe that in any which way, because I know many of them. It's not all Muslims, but in radical Islam, they believe that their job is to usher in the end of times, and they are unified in purpose. And that ability to be unified in purpose is addictive. It's attractive, even if it's insane, even if it's, it's, it's evil. There is a certain attractiveness to being unified in purpose, to live a life that's bigger than yourself. And when you live that way and can articulate that and can rally people around that way of thinking, you know what's going to end up happening? You're going to draw in followers. Even if the followers are going to literally bring havoc on innocent people and destroy themselves because there is nothing, there is nothing as attractive to a human being than thinking past himself. That's why we're all sports fans, no? That's why we'll spend a hundred bucks to sit in the freezing cold and spend 10 bucks on a beer to watch our team play 150 feet in front of us because being in a stadium gives us a drop of purpose. And even though I got a terrible view, I'd much rather go and watch the Giants live in front of with 50,000 of other Giant fans that sit in my, in my house with every single possible TV angle and a bathroom and a cheap beer. Purpose. And the question for us to deal with, to think about, and I ask you, do we have that articulated purpose? You see, that's, to me, what bothers me most about our president. I got a lot of stuff that bothers me about our president. But what bothers me most about him is that he has not done his number one job. Our president thinks that his job is to pass policy. It's to subvert the will of Congress because he can and push forth his agenda. That is not the job of the president. That's the job of Congress. That's that we have representatives that are supposed to carry on the will of the people. The job of the president is to be our leader, is to lead the nation, is to be our representative to the world. It's to be our coach. And I'm watching this thing right now. Uh, all or nothing. You ever see this on, check it out on Prime, Amazon Prime, All or Nothing. It's got the inside scoop of the season of the Arizona Cardinals and their um, coach, Bruce Arians, BA they call him. Watch what it means to be a coach. That's what it means to be a leader. When the going gets tough and Carson Palmer, you know, intercept, throws an interception in a playoff game, he's encouraging him. When things are down, he's picking them up. He's setting forth. He's looking across the horizon and saying, hey, guys, I know it seems glim. Look over there. Look at who we are. Look at who we can be. And having an individual whose job it is to be smart enough to see over that horizon and to be able to articulate a sense of pride in who we are, that's what it means to be a leader. You know what we got? We got a professor who's constantly making us feel bad about the fact that we are confused as to how innocent people want to hurt us. How, how could it be? We think they're innocent, right? They're regular people. We don't have a context for this. Americans don't have context for how an individual who lives down our block or who's, who's working in our neighborhood could ever get behind a truck or pick up a gun and shoot the same people that made the wedding shower for them. You think we know how that works? I have no, how is that possible? We're Westerners. We grew up in a world of freedom and equality. We grew up in a world of if you could just be nice to people, they'll be nice to you back. We grew up in a world of when you see somebody, you treat them with respect, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. All men are created equal. We grew up with that. Those are our ideals. 
So we have no idea how to put in context the fact that some person will just get up and shoot people for no other reason other than the fact that they just happen to not be in the same religion. But who's going to help us through it? Who is going to remind America that we are the greatest nation in the history of the world? Who is going to remind us that we stand for something? That in a, in a, in a time of, of complete and utter lack of opportunity, but in a time where the world was stuck in this terrible system, we broke free and brought capitalism and equality. And yes, we've got tons of issues throughout our history. We've got tons of people that still need to say sorry for the way they treat other people in our neighborhood and in our community and our nation, of course. But where do you have a nation where people can rise the way we rise? Where do you have a nation where people can do what we do? Where do you have this in the world? We're around for 200 and some odd years. We have surpassed every single nation on the globe 50 times over. Where do we have a glorious nation like America? Nowhere. You feel that? You get that from the top? I don't get that from the top. You come back. We're going to talk about just how much that hurts and why in this war of ideology we're losing because we have not been able, the mil- except for the military, we have not been able to articulate what we stand for. This is all coming up. We'll, we'll, we'll fix this up when we all come back. This is Charlie Harari. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Charlie Harari sitting in for Buck Sexton today. Great to be with you. Talking about the war on terror ideology and our ability to fight the war by recognizing that it's really ideology. And what I think is a complete failure from the top, failure from the president to have any level of articulation with regards to who we are. No sense of nationalism. I feel every time I hear him speak, I do not feel proud that he is representing what it means to be an American. When I see a soldier... When I see videos of soldiers, when I see so many Americans across the world building businesses, building uh, health, whatever they're doing, I'm proud. I'm proud of our country. When I see, even when I see land, you know, I, when I see sites, I'm proud of our country. I love our country. When I see our president, I feel like he's lecturing me. I just feel bad. I feel like there's this constant drip of we're not enough. And let me show you how we're not enough by over, by bending myself backwards to the world because we're not proud of what we have brought to the world. We are the greatest country, arguably, in the history, I would say. We are of the greatest countries in the history of the world. We have brought so much in terms of fairness and equality. There's plenty of way to go, but what we've done is incredible. And the fact that it's not being articulated, the fact that we can't feel proud to be an American because we feel a little bit more safe than maybe a country like Israel who's a little younger or a little bigger to, to one of the uh, comments that I got on Twitter. By the way, I'm on Twitter right now. If you want to reach me, that's the best way. You can just tweet at me at Charlie Harari or at The Blaze. I'll read your tweets. We got a tweet in saying that Israel was a smaller country, which is true. But even with all of that, if we can continuously articulate how proud we are to continue the experiment it's an experiment, is it not? Were the founders not experimenting? Did anybody know what they were doing beforehand? 
Did anyone go, oh, yeah, we did this before? Sure, it's going to look just like this. There's a p- bunch of people that said, hey, let's create something new. Let's create something great. Let's reach for the stars and went through enormous, enormous amount of personal sacrifice to give us what is the United States of America. And just because we've been at it for 200 and some odd years, it doesn't mean we can be less proud. It doesn't mean that our experiment, it doesn't mean that the baton that they passed to us, we should hold any lower than the way they held it in the 1700s, the way they held it in the 1800s. And we went through ups and downs. But you know what? That makes us stronger. We should be able to look across the table to people that are different than us and say, we're, we're here. Yeah, we'll figure it out. We've gone through elections before where there's been recounts and we didn't blow people up because we were mad at them. And I got to tell you something, in every single group in this country that feels disenfranchised and every group that feels that they're not getting treated fairly, they're not blowing people up. They're not walking into busy markets and strapping bombs. That's what America is. That's what America stands for. We should be proud of that. And if we were a little more prouder when we, we knew we were fighting for, if we can articulate what we stand for, and what we're fighting against in terms of a faith that believes, or at least the radicalness of the faith that believes that if I'm not one of you, then I deserve to die. That articulation, you know what that's going to do? It's going to make our military stronger. It's going to make our government stronger. It's going to make our people stronger. It's going to make our community stronger. It's going to make our kids stronger. Kids don't have to grow up in a world where we feel embarrassed to be Americans because the top reminds us that we're not politically correct. We should be proud of what we stand. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. We're standing on the shoulders of millions of servicemen that died for that flag. They didn't die for nothing. They died for the ideal and the dream. And if we can't articulate that and be proud and walk around proud, we're not going to win the war of ideology. That's how it feels. That's how it feels. You know why? Because anyone who watches sports, you know that the team that wants to win will always be the team that doesn't want to lose. Not wanting to lose isn't enough. Not wanting to get hurt and attacked isn't enough. We have to want to win. We have to be able to articulate why we feel our way is the way and be able to bring that out in every single nook and cranny of our country. We have to unify ourselves under the ideals of America, even when we're fighting on the, on the particulars between ourselves. And if we don't, you know what happens? Well, if we don't, what happens is Donald Trump... What do I mean? We'll talk about it. Next week is the Republican National Convention, and we're going to show you just how the lack of articulation leads to a Donald Trump, what's going on with the convention, what we can expect from Donald Trump in the convention, the Never Trump movement, and Donald Trump's vice president pick. This is all coming up when we come back on the second hour. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. And hello, everybody. Charlie Harari filling in for Buck. Great to be on with you. Sec top of the second hour. A lot going on in the world. Spent the first hour talking about terrorism, the fight of ideology, and how it is imperative for each and every one of us to really know what we're fighting for. 
to articulate to our families, to ourselves, to our children, to our neighbors, our community members, that we stand for something. And I, I, I listen, it'd be great if it came from the top, but it's not coming from the top. And it has to be. We have to be able to articulate a message of leadership. We have to be able to articulate a pride in who we are as Americans, what we stand for, our country, and what it stands for, and why we are going to continue to fight. We're not going to not lose. We're going to fight. We're going to fight in every which way to make sure that we don't live at a time where you can't go and celebrate your Independence Day without a guy grabbing a truck and running you over. You can't go to a club or to a, a place of work without fearing someone's going to come in with a gun and shoot you down. That's This is a struggle. And if if anyone thinks it's not a struggle, you're not getting it. They're struggling. they got a strategy. We need to have one as well. Our strategy can be much bigger, much broader, much more inspiring, but it needs to be one as well. And that strategy needs to be articulated to us or from us. you got to know what you're fighting for. We're going to talk in the third hour a little bit of what that means for your life. Because if you're listening to me, you know that I try to look at what's going on in the world and apply it to our particular lives, our personal lives. And we're going to do that in the third hour. Just explain just how much this applies to every area of your life. Knowing what you're fighting for. Not just existing. Not just hoping it doesn't get worse or that you're still okay or that you're surviving in your marriage, in your jobs, as a parent. You've got to go and know what you're fighting for. And the ability to articulate that is the difference between being good and being great at life. And if you don't, you end up creating a power vacuum. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons why the Republican National Convention is going to nominate Donald Trump next week to becoming the representative of the Republican Party in 2016. It is not because the Republicans all are excited for this. Or in favor of this, it is not because I believe the country, if we were just roll back the clock a couple of years, would have even anticipated or believed this. It is because in the absence of leadership that we got from Barack Obama over eight years, the Republican Party, I believe, instead of articulating the message themselves, instead of identifying the leaders themselves, instead of being able to say, hey, listen, this is going wrong. We don't like this president at all. We can bash him. I'm not saying you got to hold back, but the constant barrage of bashing to the exclusion of offering up a solution, to the exclusion of offering up a leader. Have you ever seen ever a football team, a basketball team, a law firm, a college, anything that is just wakes up in the morning and goes, hey, who should run this place? Uh, anybody? Want to raise your hand? Okay. How about you? Ever? No. They are scouting people for years. You, you look at a baseball diamond. The guy was on that baseball diamond. When he was in eighth grade, someone knew about him. You look at the top of a company. Whoever's running that company, he was in that company for 20 years. You want to run something important? You don't just roll out of bed and raise your hand and get more Twitter followers. This is the United States of America. Where, where was everybody? No one's looking at a bench. No one's looking around and saying, hey, this guy's good. This guy's not good. Let's talk about it. Let's grow people. No sense of we got eight years. Let's take our bench and grow them so at the end of eight years, we can put forth in front of you a whole slew of articulate people. And we had some good ones. Ted Cruz, I thought it was great. Mark Rubio could have been good. I think we had some people in there, but the sense that the country has no idea of the response to the inarticulation of what was coming out of the Democratic side, I think... 
and I look forward to seeing what you think, you can just tweet at me now if you disagree, has led to this vacuum. And this vacuum was filled by someone named Donald Trump. And what Donald Trump did is what everyone always does. does, right? If you're not going to elevate yourself above the conflict, if you can't get anyone to do that, you know what you're going to do? You know what the next best thing is? Find the guy who will fight harder in the conflict, right? If you can't get someone to show you a vision or articulate a message or make you feel better about yourself, at least you should win when you feel terrible, right? At least you should have someone that's, that's going to have a bigger dog fight. And that's, by the way, exactly what happened. Instead of having someone come up and say, hey, listen, this is what we've been missing over the past eight years. Let me give it to you. You get someone saying, hey, you feel like no one's paying attention? You feel like there's no nationalism in here, right? You feel like our veterans are not being taken care of. The fact that our veterans were not taken care of is not a system of just bureaucracy. That is, that is idiocy. How could you have a system that doesn't reward the veterans? It's not just a question of like, this person's in charge of this department, they're not good. It's the whole system crumbles if there isn't gratitude. So yeah, there's a, there's a lack of nationalism. There's a lack of, of excitement for your country. So you, instead of having someone step up and, and, and take us there, Maybe a Ronald Reagan type. Make us feel like we're going somewhere. If you don't got that, you know what's going to end up happening? In that power vacuum, you're going to have someone get up there and just Donald Trump it. Say, listen, I'll fight harder than anyone else. I'll, I'll hit below every belt. Don't worry. I'll, I'll, you want to see me hit below? You feel disenfranchised? I'll fight harder. I'll, 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 I will disenfranchise more people because I'm going to make sure that everyone who feels disenfranchised feels like someone out there has a bat in front of them and is just whacking everything in front of them. And that's probably what we got. And even if you're going to vote for him, which is your prerogative, don't vote for him thinking that, wow, this was really our first choice as a conservative or as a Republican. This isn't our first choice. To think, by the way, going up against Hillary Clinton, and I'll give him a little credit for that crooked Hillary little moniker, but to think that Hillary Clinton, who is basically seen by the majority of the country. I saw a stat, I think it's two-thirds of the country consider her not uh, not trustworthy. To think that this is our election, <laughs> like, can you imagine if you would have had an articulate, smart, thoughtful conservative going up against her? Can you imagine what life would look like today in the election against Hillary Clinton, who can't even really beat Bernie Sanders, who like just eked out of that dogfight, and today, and all of Sanders' files aren't even going after her. He, she just, she's literally struggling. Donald Trump is almost neck and neck with her with all the key swing states. And he hasn't spent any money on ads yet. I think she's, she, I think she's aired something like 40,000 ads so far. And she's neck and neck, maybe a little bit ahead, but neck and neck with Donald Trump. Can you imagine if we would have had a real conservative up there, a voice, a platform, something that people can rally around? Something that people can be inspired by. Can you imagine what this election would look like? We would be high-stepping to the end zone. We'd be on the 20 with the ball in the air and the defense 20 yards behind and the crowd in front of us and a Super Bowl ring in the corner. This is what, this is what we, instead of what we're doing right now. What we're doing right now is entering into the convention. And for those that are following the convention, you're going to see it's a very, very different convention this year than, than it was in the past. There's going to be none of the usuals. None of the Bushes will be there. None of Mitt Romney will be there. McCain will be there. All the the establishment, so to speak, Republicans that, you know, usually this is seen as sort of like the Republican get-together. It's like an exciting time for people to come together and have discussions. And But it's not going to happen. This is not really a Republican show for the first year. It's a Donald Trump show because Donald Trump really isn't a full conservative. And as a result, he's going to bring in his own flavor. 
This is it. He won. He 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 won. And 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 as a result, when you win the game, you get to make the party, right? I guess that's how it works. And you're going to see this week a convention. If you've been following Republican national conventions for years, you will see a convention that you will not recognize for the most part. And one thing, you know, anyone who is uh, who is hoping for another candidate, you always had that glimmer of hope. You know what I'm talking about? That at the convention something would happen. You know, it's called the Hail Mary hope. You know, ever watch a game and you see like you're down by like six and you're like, okay, it's only six. And maybe, just maybe, our quarterback can like somehow spin around the defense and throw it 80 yards. And you know that feeling you get when you watch a game and you're like, it's not over, right? It's not over. There's still 30 seconds on the clock and maybe we'll score 30 points, right? You ever have that feeling of like, oh no, I don't want to lose. So unfortunately for all you out there, that moment came last night. And in fact, last night was the end of the game. It's before the convention. Because last night something happened. The Never Trump campaign suffered what I think is their final defeat last night. What happened? We'll talk about it when we come back. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show. And hey everybody, welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Charlie Harari here, filling in for Buck. Great to be with you. Great to have the honor to speak to Team Buck. If those that want to call in and give us your opinion on what I'm talking about, you can call 888-900-3393, 888-900-3393, taking calls on the next hour. If you'd like to call in then, you could always tweet at me, at Charlie Harari at The Blaze. I'll be able to see those tweets, questions, comments. We'll uh, announce you on the air just to keep the dialogue going. Speaking about the power of knowing what you're fighting for, you know this is something that is easily missed, um, but incredibly important. You, you got to know what you're fighting for. You can't win. You can't be great at anything if you don't know what you're fighting for. And the inability to know what we're fighting for as a nation from the civilian present. I'm sure the military gets it. I'm sure if you're out there fighting on the front lines, I hope someone is articulating that for you, which takes you to a level of sacrifice. But for the rest of the country, we need to make sure we're getting it. You know, I remember when, when the, you remember when the, we went to war in the nineties um, and they sang that song, stand tall, stand proud. Do you remember that stand tall, stand proud. Remember that song? Stand, you know, voices that care. And I remember thinking to myself, we went to that Gulf war and like the nation sort of like rallied around each other. And I don't know if we got that same, I don't know if we're there now. I hope we are, and I'm sure maybe in your community it's happening or you're around your friends, but we got to fight for this. This is important. This is how we're going to win in the future, when we articulate, when we're able to feel passionate about at what we stand for as a country. We're proud of, of what America stands for, and we are proud to hold the baton that has been given to us as we carry it forth into the future. And if we don't, we're going to get people that are going to sort of descend us into the dogfight. That's just how it works. It's either or. Either you'll get someone to take you over the hill, or you'll get someone to fight you in the mud. That's it. That's it. And, and that, I think, is what is happening today with the Republican National Party, in that they've got Donald Trump as their leader, when he may not be the 
best representative for the conservative ideal, but that hasn't been articulated quick enough. Or maybe he, they haven't taken him seriously enough early on. So when he came, they thought it was a joke until people started really agreeing with him, unfortunately. But there was always this hope, in my head at least, that maybe when we got to the floor, when we got to the convention, I was sitting here for many times filling in for Buck saying, I'm sure when we get to the convention, you got Cruz and you got this and you got that. And I thought this would be the week where we were like gearing up for like, you know, WrestleMania 2016, where it would be like, you know, Rumble in the Jungle, the cage fight. And it would be like the best convention ever. And you'd be watching votes cast and you'd be saying, well, did he get it? Did he? Oh, my gosh. I was hoping for that, but it's not. It's not going to happen. And in fact, for those that have that glimmer of hope, I'm sorry to bring it to you, but last night it actually got voted down. Last night, you know, this all started with a Colorado delegate named Kendall Unruh, who is a Christian public school teacher and a supporter of Ted Cruz. They um, they passed or they, they tried to get a bill into the rules committee that would allow people to vote their conscience. That was the big play, right, to get some measure of when the delegates came to vote in the president, they can, as opposed to being bound as they were um, according to the rules, they would be able to vote their conscience and vote for whoever they want to, regardless of the votes of their state's primary. And this developed a little bit of support and kind of you know started going a little bit. This, by the way, would have been the moment where we could have seen the convention erupt into a sense of who will win. And that, I mean, it would have been amazing, but Last night in the rules committee meeting, the they were voted down soundly. And so the delegates that come in are bound to vote for that candidate. And as a result, Donald Trump has enough delegates to be uh, nominated president. In fact, there was another amendment that was passed um, that basically said that you have to vote what you were supposed to vote and basically undermining any debate left in terms of the contention of the of the convention and literally a, a amendment to sort of sort of kibosh any of what they were ho- what people were hoping would be um, the chance of an of a non-trump candidate um, and that amendment that was proposed by Nevada delegate Jordan Ross passed 87 to 12 so we're right now days before the convention and all sort of that backdoor stuff that we hear about in terms of what's going to end up playing out has sort of been decided. And so it's like almost like, you know, you can't throw a Hail Mary pass without your quarterback. Not to use so many football references this show. So I hope that you know football and follow football. Um, but, you know, it's like you pull your quarterback and now who's going to throw the ball. So that's pretty much where it is right now. Um, we've got a situation where you've got a convention coming up and a convention that I hope, I hope makes, you know, Republicans proud a little bit. I know it's not going to be sort of the typical convention that people are used to, um, but it's a convention that, um, if you were hoping that there'd be some sort of Hail Mary of another candidate coming in, people were talking about John Kasich coming in because it's Cleveland, and that was a possibility. Um, there was a there was a shot at Ted Cruz I saw going around a while back, and that got sort of knocked down. But this is it. Um, Donald Trump will, um, in all likelihood, um, based on the delegates and the backroom deals that took place in this past few days, become the nominee and the Republican party is going to have to sort of grapple with what do we do next? Is he the one that's going to bear the voice? Um, is he the one that's going to be able to articulate what it is that we stand for? What is that conservative principles mean to the country and why now more than ever? And I got to tell you, forget even like national security, forget what's going on in terms of terrorism. Just forget all that. Let's, let's put that to the side. 
we got an economic issue. I mean, we are we are dealing with an economic crisis that is only going to get worse. I mean, it's been a decade since that last sort of crisis came out, and we're not back. We're not back. Economy is not growing. Inflation is still really low. GDP is really low. People need jobs. Unemployment is way too high. We are literally in a position where conservative principles can really offer some great solutions to economic issues that are plaguing our, our country right now. And let's see. Let's see what's going to happen. But Because Donald Trump is actually um, going to be the candidate, and we're going to have a convention. And let's see just how much, um, if it even they, they buy it, if they really buy Trump as the candidate, Trump as the, the standard bearer of the party, um, and what that means. And I know that lots of Republicans are leaving. Lots of Republicans are boycotting. And that's one approach. I know there will be a lot of people. Um, that won't be there. I think they invited Tim Tebow and he said, what? I didn't know about this. I think they invited him without even telling him, which is interesting. Um, there'll be a lot of people that, that aren't that aren't going to be there and that are going to – if you think about how crazy that is, there's a lot of people that are going to be um, skipping the convention. They're just le- It's unbelievable to think about the amount of Republicans that are just not going to show up at their own convention in an election year. But it's going to really be an interesting play. And there are a lot of Republicans that will go for him. I saw Paul Ryan speak the other day about how – the chances of a conservative agenda being put forth through Congress with Hillary is, you know, zero. And at least Donald Trump will be able to agree on certain basic conservative principles. And so it's better to have Trump than to have nobody. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I can't tell if it's better to have Trump as your leader than to have, well, I guess Hillary Clinton is just, you know, but, you know, that it is what it is. And so the convention's coming up um, next week. There's going to be a lot of stuff going on next week. There's going to be a lot of... Uh, interesting things we'll be hearing from a lot of different people to see just how it comes across to the nation, just what's going to go on outside the convention. I think it'll give us a lot of information to see how big those protests are, who's coming out to those protests, just how unlikable is the candidate that the Republicans are putting forth into 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 the party, into the election, and what happens afterwards. Is he going to pivot? Is he going to reach out to communities that he has not been able to get now and realize that he has to start to become more of a general election candidate? And he took the first step. He took the first step because he nominated this morning his vice presidential candidate. Um, That is um, news as of his Twitter feed this morning. Mike Pence is going to be his vice president. What does that mean for the Trump election and the campaign and his strategy? Well, coming up, we're going to be speaking to Jake Novak, political commentator, on why he chose Pence and why Pence actually fits in to a larger Midwestern strategy. It's all coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. You're listening to Charlie Rowery filling in for Buck on the Blaze Radio Network. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Hey everybody, Charlie Harari here. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Lots going on in the world, speaking about terrorism and fighting the ideological war on terrorism, speaking about what happens if you don't, you get Donald Trump, that's what happens, and Donald Trump in next week's Republican National Convention and the failed attempts of the Never Trump movement 
and Donald Trump's decision to pick Mike Pence as his running mate. And joining me right now is political commentator Jake Novak, who has joined us on this show here, and to talk a little bit about why Donald Trump chose Pence on on as his ticket. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. And let me ask you a question. So Donald Trump comes out this morning with this. This is amazing, by the way, how, you know, the way he announced, you know, Pence's through Twitter, which is a whole nother discussion, I think, that you're so aware of. But um, Donald Trump announced Mike Pence as his running mate. Why does he choose Pence versus someone maybe that's a minority, a woman? What is his thinking in going with um, a white male from the Midwest as his running mate? Well, you know, like Nixon had his Southern strategy in 1968, I think Trump really has a Midwestern strategy, which not only is a geographical uh, strategy, but also kind of an, an, an ethical or a philosophical strategy. Trump from day one, remember, the, the things that people will remember the most about his campaign, because he started in day one with this, was to talk about closing the borders and being tougher on trade. These are all things that resonate in key blue-collar states like Ohio, like Indiana, like Michigan and Pennsylvania. Um, there really weren't a lot of choices from Michigan and Pennsylvania that Trump could look at. I, I, I thought that Kasich would be possibly his best choice coming out of Ohio, but obviously that wasn't going to work out. Either Kasich didn't want it or, or Trump was, didn't want him. So Pence becomes really the best other choice that he could have had out there. He, governor of Indiana, one of those states that probably was going to go to Trump anyway. It's not really to win Indiana, but it's to win over those neighboring states and also to win over the kinds of people who identify with a Mike Pence who may not necessarily live in the Midwest, but live in some other battleground states. You mean someone who has a little more experience, he's a congressman, he's a governor, um, I think maybe he has, he's a little more articulate, a little, little bit, you know, although he's been fiery lately, a little more even-tempered. Is, do you think Donald Trump is trying to show um, the, the voters that he's got a, uh, a running mate who can sort of balance him out and sort of make him a little more sort of, you know, middle of the road? You know what? I, I don't think so. <laughs> I know that's what a lot of people are saying about him, and it's certainly true. It's not like that isn't going to happen. He will balance out the ticket. He will make the decision. You know, this is the first big decision that Trump has had to make since he became the presumptive nominee, and he's chosen somebody like Mike Pence. So absolutely, he gets those things. But I don't think that's what Trump was going for. I think Trump was going for this Midwestern strategy. As you look at the electoral map, and you look at the polls, and you look at the places where Trump can, can beat, you know, listen, he's going to have to beat the polling expectations for the most part to win this thing, the conventional expectations. And I don't think he's going to flip states like, yeah, certainly not a California or a Washington or an Oregon or places like that. He has a chance, though, to flip states like a Pennsylvania, like, uh, you know, maybe a Virginia, because, you know, Virginia has a lot of coal. It's not the Midwest, but it has a lot of coal mining, a part of its economy in the western part of that state. So a guy like Mike Pence comes from that region. He speaks to people from that region. So even more than the moderating influence that he has on the ticket, I think he has a geographic even if it's just a philosophical one, a geographic appeal to a lot of the folks that Trump knows that he, he needs to get out to the polls. You know, it, it shocks me a little bit that he couldn't have found somebody that may have been able to, especially in the swing states, that may have been able to identify groups that he's not reaching because they're representative of those groups and that still share his ideals of the border, of trade, of immigration. A lot of what he has been sort of projecting as his major key platforms I'm shocked that he wasn't able to sort of pick people that maybe could bring them into groups, especially because he's going to be fighting in all these swing states. And these swing states are filled with women voters and minority voters and all these different groups that are not for Trump right now, that he, he wasn't able to sort of identify a candidate that was really similar to him in ideals, but different than him in, in sort of standing or in, in connection to group. 
Well, I don't think you should be surprised for two reasons. The first reason, which is that the kind of person that you've described doesn't exist so much in these swing states. You know, Trump is absolutely espousing ideas and saying things that other politicians have been afraid to say in this country for going on 40 years from both parties. One of the things that really frustrates a lot of conservatives or different types of conservatives or different types of typical Republican voters from so many years is that they don't feel like they've had that kind of fiery rhetoric that they'd like to hear. And it's, of course, one of the biggest complaints you've heard about Mitt Romney and his campaign in 2012, that he wasn't strong enough and tough enough. And, but that's one of the things that helps you get elected when you're a little bit more tepid in a, in, a, in a statewide election. So that's the first thing. The second reason why you shouldn't be surprised that he didn't choose a minority or a woman is Trump doesn't want to make the kinds of decisions that make it look like he's apologizing or backtracking on his message. And I think that if he had chosen a minority, chosen a woman, I think it would have made it look like he was really kowtowing to something like he was afraid. And I think um, that's not, it's not going to work from his brand. It might, I don't think, A, I don't think it's going to get women and minorities to vote for him anyway. And if it, and I do think it would turn off some of the people who would vote for him. So I, I, I kind of always felt that he was going to go with someone who was not one of those folks who, who the, the conventional wisdom folks said, oh, you got to go with the woman. You got to go with the minority. I, I, I knew that he hasn't been listening those people from day one and so far it's worked for them. Yeah, I guess I guess that's a great point that you just brought up that I think needs to be sort of highlighted and brought out here, which is he has thrown out every rule anyways. Why would he stop why would he start following rules now when he has basically ran a campaign that has cut against every single convention in you know in sort of I guess the the past ten, fifteen, twenty years of of, of, uh, of presidential elections. And so I guess he's just doing what he does, which is moving in a direction and going all in. And that all in this is sort of driving, you know, sort of voters to saying, hey, this is a new, fresh brand of politics. Is that what it is? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not delusional. I, I, um, I've been on record now for two months saying that I believe that Trump is going to win. But like I said, I'm not delusional. I, I readily admit that believing that he's going to win means that I believe that a lot of the conventional wisdom, good conventional wisdom, even nonpartisan conventional wisdom is going to be wrong this time. So you have to understand that. The point is, yes, he, he is, if you think he's going to win like I do, you have to understand that a lot of the conventional wisdom is wrong, a lot of the polling is wrong, not because of partisanship, but because this is, he's bringing out new voters, he's relying on people who haven't ever voted, you know, who haven't voted in a long time, and if you think he's going to win like I do, you absolutely are running in the face of conventional wisdom on a lot of different things, and that's where I am. Um, the point is, is that I think Trump is also understanding that, because one of the things I've also said is that I think Trump was the first to realize this, because he's the ex in branding, the Republican brand as we know it, this is very painful for conservatives like me to admit, but, he cer- but I certainly learned it in the last few months. The Republican brand as we've known it is dead. I mean, I think of things like, for example, this attack in Nice or other things that have happened, and I can think of a way of a, a, a Jeb Bush or even a Marco Rubio would have responded to it. I think it would have come off weak and boring. And people want, people are very emotionally affected by politics. Emotions, you know, rule the day when it comes to politics all the time. And a non-emotional, more restrained response that you would have gotten from a mainstream Republican candidate would not go over well. And these are the things that go over well for, for, for Trump. But just from a regular demographic point of view and from a political point of view, yeah, people keep, people keep saying, oh, well, Trump can't win because he's losing what already is a losing brand of, of the Republican Party. Well, that's the whole point. He's trying to shake it up. He knows that if he got 100% support from all the Republicans of the past, he still wouldn't win. So what's the point in trying to shore up that 100%? He needs to go elsewhere. And, of course, to do that, he's going to have to anger some of those Republican-based voters. But that's the only way to do it. And I think the Republican brand is kind of was a loser before Trump kind of blew it up, and now it is for sure. And, but that's the only way to win. So, so I mean, th- these are in- incredible statements. And the, and the fact that the, his playbook is to blow up what is 
what was the, what was once, I guess, in your opinion, the Republican brand and create a new one. So in even in the face of all the polling of where Hillary is, I guess, eking him out in certain states, swing states, you don't think that with all going on today and all of the highly unfavorableness in terms of that, that Donald Trump is receiving in terms of the polling, you think that you're – and I've been watching you for a while, so I, I, I sort of know where this is going, but – I'm watching you predict, and you're one of the few people that I think, when I, in terms of the commentators out there, that has been predicting a Trump victory for months. You're not jumping on a, a, a Trump bandwagon now that the Never Trump movement got killed last night. You've been talking about this for a very long time, and so you've got a lot on this line over here. Tell, tell me why is it, and, and what, why do you think that Donald Trump, at the end of the day, even with his high unfavorability polling, is going to ultimately pull out an electoral college victory because even if he's getting large swaths of voters in sort of red states, it doesn't mean that he's going to be able to pull out those blue those swing states that'll be the difference maker in every election and this election. Why do you think he will be able at the end of the day to overcome Hillary Clinton? Because for two reasons: one, Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton. Uh, listen, this was a corrupt coronation process that made her the nominee for the Democratic Party. And I'm not just talking about the fight against Bernie Sanders. I'm talking about the very strong efforts that went on for years to keep anybody else out of the running for the Democratic nomination this year. This corrupt coronation process is backfiring. She's a bad candidate. She has almost as high unfavorables as Trump, and in some cases even higher, depending on the state that you're looking at. That is, you know, one big reason why he 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 will win. Another reason why he's going to win is I'm looking at three states in particular, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Florida. I think Trump can win all three of those states. And one of the reasons why, and one of the reasons why the pollsters aren't getting this is, first of all, you have a lot of people who are not telling the pollsters the truth about Donald Trump. This is what we call the reverse Tom Bradley effect. Tom Bradley, the black mayor of Los Angeles, who ran for governor twice of California, ahead in the polls both times, but lost pretty decidedly both times. And they found out later that white voters were embarrassed to tell pollsters to their face that they wouldn't vote for Tom Bradley. They were afraid of being called a racist. I think Trump has the opposite effect. I think people are telling pollsters they're not going to vote for him when they speak to them in person, when they really are going to vote for him. And the proof being in these telephone polls that we see and online polls that are more anonymous, Trump has leads. He has a lead in the Rasmussen poll, which isn't the most reliable poll in the world. But honestly, when he's up by seven points in the Rasmussen poll, that tells me that people in private moments, are going to vote for Trump. They're just not going to say so out loud. And, you know, all the, but even the, the in-person polls in, in Pennsylvania show Trump ahead, or at least tied. Wow. And that's got to be very, very disturbing for Hillary Clinton. That's a state that the Democrats have won in, all, in every election for, you know, a long time, since 1992. I, I got so a few, to me, that tells me he can win. I've got a few more questions for you. Stick with me. We're, we're going to go sure. to a quick break over here. Are you listening to The Buck Sexton Show? This is Charlie Harari talking to Jake Novak, um, and we'll be right back. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Charlie Harari here filling in for Buck listening to the Blaze Radio Network, talking to Jake Novak, political commentator, the man who's, who's been predicting. i got to tell you, he's got a lot of guts. He's been coming out early, early on, way before anybody else saying that Donald Trump has got a, a chance it, or he will be winning. Talking about Trump's decision to pick Mike Pence as his running mate and why that fits into a very clear Midwestern strategy, as Jake says. And what I think is a little more shocking is... His ability, with all of the unfavorable 
miss that you're hearing about him. All the protests and all the never Trump movements and all the un- unfavorable you know polling with all of that put together, Jake still believes that he's going to beat Hillary Clinton because even so, she is more unfavorable. So it's just a, it's Jake. Don't you think we're living in the craziest time that we're choosing between like bad or worse? Those are our choices, and people are like, well, I would, but she's worse. Um, and I saw this great poll, and I'll let you talk. I saw this great poll this morning. Tell me if you've seen something like this, where Hillary Clinton's unfavorability polls is as high, her unfavorability is high as Bill Clinton was during the impeachment Lewinsky stuff. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, l- let me be a, a bringer of good news to, your, <laughs> to the audience on this. You know, the fact that we have terrible candidates and, and not as strong candidates as we should, I think, is something that almost everyone agrees on. I haven't heard anyone disagree with me on that. But I, I think that there's, actually there's, there's a good reason for that. And there's one good reason for that, and that is I think that the best and the brightest of American people of all ages over the last 40 years have found many new ways to make a difference in the world and to make to get success and to get fame other than politics. Um, you know, even the best law schools in this country right now are seeing reduced interest in application. And that just tells me that the people who are the non-math and science folks out there who are exceptional, the good speakers out there, the kind of people who used to go into politics straight through the, the legal profession, are finding other places to do that now. So let me just put that one sprinkle of goodness. I mean, we, we might not have the greatest politicians right now, but we might have more great Americans doing other things. Mm, that but sounds as good. Far as Hil- yeah, but as far as Hillary is concerned... She is, I'm, I mean, I've been saying this over and over. I think almost any major Democratic candidate right now from the party would be doing much, much better than she was. She is. This has nothing to do with her qualifications one way or the other. This is just the fact that voters don't connect with her. You know, this isn't the first time that this has happened with her. She also should have, by all, on paper, d- destroyed Barack Obama and all the other comers in 2008. And yet she didn't win. And it's just because she Amazing. just, you know, you have to connect personally. And that's something that her husband did extremely well. So she has no excuse for not being able to do this because she, she, she's been living with or near uh, a guy who did it really well for 40 years. She doesn't connect with people very well. To me, the reason why Hillary Clinton isn't winning is all summed up in that famous picture of her from last year in the dark glasses waiting at the Chipotle counter trying not to be recognized. If that had been, 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 been Bill Clinton, no matter how tired he was or angry he was, he would have been behind the counter right. taking selfies with the crew, right. and she just doesn't have that personal and, uh, connectivity. And, and what for me, and I know we gotta we gotta head to, to the break here, but for me, you know what it also shows the lesson that if you have to choose between somebody who you can connect to, so to speak, but you disagree with their opinions, but they seem like they're somewhat speaking their mind, and there's some level of authenticness coming out of them, versus somebody who you just can't trust and you don't know what they're saying. Even though that person will say the right things, people just don't connect to that. And you're seeing it with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton right now. You're seeing somebody who is clearly saying things that most people disagree with. But it seems, at least until now, it's t- till now it still does. It seems that he means it. Versus someone like Hillary who just keeps on saying stuff. People are like, I, I got no idea. And that sort of like human dynamic of choosing th- the first over the, over the second is just such an important part of life. Because we think we always got to say the things that we want to hear, but if they're not authentic, people can sort of figure it out. And I think that's going on with Hillary. But we got to we got to go to the, the to a break here. We're going to the end of the hour. Jake, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your wisdom as always. Continue doing what you're doing, and uh, looking forward to being in touch and getting you back on the show in the near future. Thank you. And that was Jake Novak. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck. Um, we'll be right back at the top of the hour with a lot more, some lessons for life, a little bit of a CNN glitch. See what happened there. This is all coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. 
You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Hey, everybody! Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Charlie Harari here, filling in for Buck. Hope everyone's doing well. Hope everyone's having a great Friday. Lots going on today. Talking about what went on in Nice last night. Unfortunately, a terrible terrorist attack that took the lives of so many innocent civilians, kids. Uh, just a horrible, horrible attack that happened last night. In the aftermath of that, and dealing with that. And my heart goes out to the families and to the entire French community that's really reeling from what happened and how they're going to prevent it going forward, which is really hard. We spoke about the war of terror as an ideological war and how we as Americans need to recognize that and start to amp up our ideology. We've got a lot to be proud of. We have a lot to be proud of. We stand for so many principles that has changed the face of the globe. And it's about time that we had a leader that actually made us feel nationalistically proud like that word nationalistically proud and if we're not getting it from him we got to give it to each other and that's how we're going to really begin to start to fight the battle on terror spoke about donald trump um and him being the at this point you know the the republican nominee it's just a question of just time now he's already gotten the part now he's got to sign the paperwork and his strategy for picking Mike Pence as his running mate, as this sort of Midwestern strategy, sort of double down on his platform, not need to reach out to a woman or minority to be his running mate, which would have made sense, but to continue to break all the rules, to continue to sort of do what he's doing and change the game. And he's doing it in the backdrop of what is probably the most unfavorable candidate that I think the Democrats have put forward in the past you know, 20, 30 years. It's just unbelievable just how unlikable Hillary Clinton can be with everything that she's gotten, with all of her coronations, with the fact that she's sort of basically had the chance to sort of walk herself and waltz into the nomination to go up against a no-name Bernie Sanders who came out of left field and take her as far as he did, and to have the country basically see her at the same light as they saw Bill Clinton during his impeachment is just, I guess, a feat into itself. So, you know, congratulations to Hillary for being that unlikable. And this whole FBI thing uh, coming out in her favor, I don't know how long it's going to last in terms of news cycles. But if it stays in people's minds for the next few months, I think that the implications are going to remain the same. That We just can't trust whatever comes out of her mouth. And you just can see just what that means. But for me, as you know, as we go through these shows, you got to take a moment as you look around to history, look around to politics, and as opposed to sort of keeping it out there and sitting back and sort of looking at the screen or looking at, at, at the world and saying, look at what's going on in Hillary and Donald Trump, and, you know, they should be doing this and shouldn't be doing this. It's great to be sort of an armchair uh, quarterback and to decide what should happen, and it's hard to be in the game. That's not what life's really all about. you got to figure out what are the lessons that we're seeing out there that we can see in them and sort of apply it to ourselves. And I think that when you look around at a Donald Trump candidate, if you are a conservative, if you are uh, someone who tends to align with the Republican Party, you're, you're, you feel this incredible lack of missed opportunity. 
this is the year. It's like if you're a sports fan and your team doesn't make the, the playoffs and the other team who they usually lose to has their starters all injured, you go, ah, had they just made the playoffs, we would have we would have literally won it this year. This is the year that a candidate that could have really gotten up there and represented the conservative values would have, I think, landslided across to the victory here. And it's not happening. And the question is why? And it reminds me of a story that I want to share that was one of the more important lessons that I got in my life. It happened in my first year. So I was, I was a lawyer for many years. And my first year of being a lawyer, I worked for a firm in the city. And in the firm, the clients that we had were much bigger than my you know, pay grade. I was just a first-year associate. But what they let us do is they let us represent pro bono clients. There'd be clients that will get free services, and some of them had to go to court, and they let us represent these clients in court. I'll never forget, it was late at night before my first time ever being in court. I mean, this is just, for those who are attorneys and you've been to court, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's one of these moments that, like, you just can't breathe, you can't think. It's just utter and complete anxiety to be able to walk into a court of law with somebody else's you know, their lives. I don't know if it's, in this case, it wasn't like life or death. It was their financial future. Their, this argument that I was disputing was a company that they thought that they started that someone took from them. So we're talking about something really important to people's lives and it's hanging in your balance, hanging in your performance. And you, you know, you know that obviously it's, you know, in God's hands and, you know, but you're representing that person. And so it was late at night and I'm working in my office and I'm going through my arguments and I'm going through them again and again and again. And the partner was on his way home, and he sees that the light is still on my office. So he passes by my office and sticks his head in and says, Hey, you going home? I said, Not for a while. He said, Well, how come? I go, Well, tomorrow's the court case, and I got to just make sure that I'm totally prepared. And he said, Wow, your first court case. And something like washed over him. You know, this guy must have been in his 60s. He must have done hundreds. But he saw that, like, you know, that young rookie, you know, attorney with his first court case. So he comes into my office and he sits down and he puts his feet up on the desk and he says, I'm going to give you a little bit of advice. And if you listen to this advice, it's going to make your life a lot harder and make you a lot more successful. So as soon as you intro with that, I'm like, yeah, whatever you say next is going to be amazing. It better be the intro like that. So I said, yeah, sure, please, you know, let me take out a pen and paper. So he says, whenever you're preparing for a case as big as this or anything in your life, always listen to the voice. So the voice which voice? He's like, the voice. I'm like, I'm I, talking about God. I mean, wait, what, what voice are we talking about? He's like, there's everyone has that voice that's inside them that asks them that one question that they don't want to answer. You know, that says, you know, what we really should do look at this, but that's really hard. Do you know this answer? And to get that answer requires you to like, you know, spend another hour researching, you know, did you, did you, can you do this? You know that voice that sort of pushes you a little bit further? It's, it could be a little guilt. It could be, you know, they see something. And each and every one of us, when we go through life, we have the voice. And the voice sort of shows us something that we would have overlooked because we didn't want to put in the effort. We didn't want to go through the change. We didn't want to work that hard. You ever do this with somebody where you're in a relationship and you say something and you leave and then the voice says, you shouldn't have said that. And then your louder voice says, yeah, you should have. No, she deserved it or he deserved it or I don't care if I, and the, and that little voice is like, okay, fine, whatever. You know what I'm talking about? And later you realize I shouldn't have said that. 
or where you hear someone is going through something and you should have went over or, or done something or, or, or connected to them or went out of your way for a friend or a colleague. And it's just hard. It takes time out of your day or maybe take some money out of your pocket. And that voice says, you really should go over. You really should just stop by and buy them this. And you go, no, oh, I'm busy and it doesn't really matter. And there's a lot of people that take care of them. And, you know, they weren't even close to them anyways. And that little voice goes, okay. And then you look over later on and you go, shoot, I should have went over. That voice that says, this is how you should be. This little issue that you keep on seeing, yeah, look that up. He goes, what he told me that night was, when you look at great attorneys, they're all, almost all good attorneys are going to be 80% good. You go to a court case, if they're good, if they're incompetent, then they're incompetent. But if you go into a court case, what you're going to find is lots of people that are like, they're the same. Right, This guy's his point, and then she has her point, and you go back and forth, and you cross-examine the witness, and you direct the witness, and you're basically building your case the whole way through. He goes, but the great attorneys, they've, heard, they've listened to the voice. They're ready. Because something's going to happen mid-trial where that one question that is in the back of your mind is going to come up. And if you hesitate, if you don't know that answer, or if you can, on the other side, jump on it, that's going to make the difference whether or not you win or whether or not you lose. It's that small little, you got to go a step further. You got to push yourself a little bit more. That's the difference between winning and losing, between living and dying if you're in the army. That's the difference between being great or being good. See, good is the enemy of great. And when you don't listen to that little voice, that is inside each and every one of us. When you don't take that voice seriously, what happens is it gets bigger and it gets stronger and it starts to pull you away from what you could have been. So why don't we hear that voice? How come it doesn't come to us naturally? And what does this have to do with Donald Trump? Well, we'll talk about it when we come back right here on the show. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. You're listening to Charlie Harari filling in for Buck on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Charlie Harari filling in for Buck. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Everyone's doing well. Speaking about the bit of advice that I got from my partner on that first night before I got my first case, which was to listen to the inner voice. And that is something that I have been working on until then. And I think can be something that if you really heard, and it can really change our lives. Because a lot of what we want to be in life is available to us in terms of wisdom. It's just not in terms of action. right? We think that some level of success is coming to us and something's going to magically happen to give us something that we want. And that's not true. That's not America. In fact, that's part of the greatest part of America, I think. I think what makes America great is that it's not just that we pontificate about meritocracy. We live in a largely, uh, and there are parts that may not be, but it's a largely you know, constructed meritocracy. 
And if you work hard enough and you get good enough grades and you get you do good enough in your work and you, you you're, you're creative and you start things and you try things, for the most part, America gives you that opportunity to sort of grow. So it's not a question really of what you don't know or don't know. It's a question of how hard you're going to work. And that night when that partner told me that it's that voice, I've been thinking about it ever since. And by the way, you ever get this feeling where you're working and you're doing something for your boss and you hear the voice? And you don't do that, and they come in, you give them like your work product, and they're like, and what about this? And that thing that was in your head, you're like, ah, I knew to ask that, right? Or you're studying for a test, and you're like, nah, I don't got to cover that. And that's the first question, right? That's how it works. Because your brain, and then we can talk about a whole sort of, you can do it this whole entire show on and our neuroplasticity in our brain, but our brain sort of picks up on these nuances, even in our subconscious, that our conscious brain doesn't sort of know about yet, but it's processing data at a rate so much larger and quicker than our conscious brain. And so it picks up these nuances and it gets a little gut that this is important. That's not important. And, but we're just scared to work. We're scared to dig deep. We're scared to take things seriously, right? We're scared to take terrorism as seriously as it is. We absolutely are. We're scared to make certain assumptions that can come to bite us later on. And if you want to look at the Republican national process right now, this is this is what happened. When Donald Trump showed up, nobody took him seriously. No, nobody, 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 nobody took him seriously. And the Republican national committee should have said, hey, wait a second. This is this is that's the voice. There's there's something this. He he is something. Let's not let this grow. Let's deal with this in, initially. And I don't think, by the way, even Donald Trump thought he would get as big as he is right now. I don't think anybody, anybody thought that Donald Trump would be right now the nominee, even Donald Trump himself. And I think if the Republican committee would have realized that to go after someone like Donald Trump, who is breaking every rule, who is hitting under the belt, it's going to get really difficult. And that's not what they're used to in their their primary processes. A primary is typically two guys going at, at two guys going at it, and in a somewhat civil way, and everybody choosing. And you look around. To, I'm not saying every primary was perfect, but if you look around to every basic primary in Georgia, McCain and Romney, McCain, and you know, you look around to the primary process, and you'll see that for the most part, you've got lots of people that have ideas, and for the most part, they're civil. They may do a couple of dirty tricks here and there, but you a couple of debates, and people make some choices, and one gains momentum, and that momentum sort of sort of garnishes more donations, and it sort of gets there. This is how we've been always doing it. Then a guy shows up with like a Twitter feed, and he's like making fun of people and calling you by your name. Like you're like, what? Am I in fourth grade? And that little voice comes up and says, hey, he's serious. Deal with it now. But they don't. They just, they just let it sit there. And then at some point, people are like, hey, this is funny. I like this guy. Yeah, go after her. That's I never heard that one before. And then he's us sitting center stage of a, deba- a debate. Remember this? Remember those debates? <laughs> those good old-fashioned debates? He's center stage, just making fun of people. Megyn Kelly, Rosie O'Donnell. He's just making, making fun of making fun. And then Jeb Bush gets it way too late and goes after him, but it's too late. And then Marco Rubio gets it. Marco Rubio gets it so late. He gets it like after the credits. And he starts going after him, but it's too late. And Ted Cruz, who has tried so hard to keep the, the campaign where it should be, he is getting, he's worked every angle. It's too late. It's too late. Because when you want to be great at something, sometimes if you start too late, you miss it. You miss it. 
You're married to somebody after a bunch of years. If you're not listening to her or him, it can get too late. You got little kids at home. If you're not listening to what it means to be a parent, you can't put your knees on the floor and read that book. You can't have that catch. You can't not expect your kids to work on your schedule. You hear, you don't hear that voice enough. Guess what happens? Those kids become 17, 18 and it's too late. Yeah, not, you could always get some level of salvation, but you know what I mean? Greatness. Sometimes it's too late. We're right now in a unique spot because the Republicans are about to have a convention that most Republicans couldn't even have dreamed of. And you know why? Because whoever was the ones that were on top chose not to hear that voice. That little voice that requires you to dig deeper, to do something that you've never done before, to push to a place you've never pushed before to have to contend with something. But it's always in those moments that you become where you're supposed to be. So I want to give a shout out to James Evan Grum. James Evan Grum, who just tweeted me, how did that case turn out? Thank you for Karen. I got to tell you how that case turned out. I listened to that partner and I was there for three more hours that night. And I was racking my brain. And one of the things that I saw on the earlier pages was a bigger deal than I had originally thought. He literally was on the money. That's why he was so successful, this partner. And I researched it and I came up in my head with a response to what if I would have been asked this question or my client would have been asked this question. And because I researched and I just Googled and I came up with a thought, that's all I did was I really thought through what the answer was. The next day on trial, that, 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 that question came up. And I think had I not been able to be prepared, it would have hurt my client. And in the end, it didn't. And we ended up being successful in that case. And since then, I got to tell you, I fail a lot. But if I look back at the things that I'm proud of, it's usually related to the times where that voice says, come on, just go. You'll sleep a little less. You work a little harder. You'll be a little more vulnerable. It's okay. It's okay. You were wrong. Just say you're sorry or hold it in. You don't need to. It's those moments that make us the most human and those moments that make us who we're supposed to be. Because at the end of the day, that's deep down what we want, right? We want to feel like we are being the best that we can be. We want to represent ourselves in the best possible way. And to do that, we don't have to be somebody we're not. We just have to be the best that we can be. And that means that in those moments where we can push ourselves past what was done before, if somebody in that committee would have been able to say, this is never done before, but who cares? Let's do it anyways. Let's act this way because we have a threat coming in or this is someone that we don't think is representing us or whatever it is that ended up happening. When we are able to respond in that way, what happens is we're able to become the people that we're meant to be. And that's, I think, really it, it, success seems to be like elusive but it's not because, by the way, if you look at a lot of entrepreneurs, that's how they started their companies. There's that problem that everybody had, but nobody thought to think about. And they did, you know, that's how people get to that next level in their jobs is they think of that one thing that no one asked them to do, but they know that if they would just research it, that would be what the company needs. And their boss is like, wow, thanks. And here's your chance because that's what greatness is. When we come back. I'm going to play a little clip for you. And get your opinion as to whether or not you think the media was being truthful or not. We'll wrap up the show, speak about some lessons, 
we'll call it a day. This is all coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Charlie Harari here filling in for Buck. Honored to be sitting in his chair today. Honored to be able to talk to you. So much going on in the world. We've been talking about so much uh, in terms of what's happening in the Republican side, what's happening in the war of terror. But one of the things that I think we don't talk about, I mean, we, I shouldn't say that. We talk about this enough, but I think it's always important to talk about it. You know, the journalists, media see themselves as sort of the watchdog to the government you know they feel very much that and, and and in many cases they're right that but for them people will get away with stuff and I, I think there's a lot of truth there i think that journalists that take their job seriously understand and know that their job is to keep people honest and i find it very i find a huge social cause in scandals being brought out in public and politicians being watched sometimes a little too much but being watched so that this way everybody knows that if you step out of line, people will know about it. I think the fact that today people are getting constantly tagged for things they did wrong is changing the dynamics of people that will do things wrong, which is very, very valuable. But when a media source doesn't take that seriously, there's some real serious consequences. And it hurts us. It really does. Now, this is what was going around in the past few days. I've seen this a few times. And I wanted to get your opinion on this because I'm sort of split CNN was covering the post-shootings that took place um, this past week and all the eruptions that was taking place in the protests from all over the country, the shootings of those two black individuals and the aftermath of that and all that was going on in terms of that disruption. Well, of course, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton came out and said something. And there was a reporter in CNN that was talking about Hillary Clinton, but what she was doing is speaking about it, about what was going on, but then saying how, hey, Hillary Clinton is vulnerable too, right? She was part of a lot of the legislation that Bill Clinton passed that led to a lot of this stuff. So she comes out, you know, sort of pretending like she's new to it, but she's not new to any of this stuff. Now, what, what I want you to do is I want you to listen to the clip and what you'll find is something very fascinating that just happened in CNN um, that people have been talking about. Listen to this clip and I'll come back and we'll talk about it. But largely Hillary Clinton's comments here today, John, were based around the recent violence that we have seen. The police-involved shootings of black men in Minnesota, in Louisiana, and then the killing of white police officers by a black gunman in Dallas. That was really uh, what she based her comments on around today. And remember, Hillary Clinton has some vulnerabilities herself, even as she calls for criminal justice reform because of her support in the 1990s for anti-crime legislation that ultimately help contribute to this era of mass incarceration that she now uh, speaks out uh, again. Uh, we just lost uh, we just lost Brianna Keeler, who was in Springfield, Illinois, where Hillary Clinton just spoke. So that took place in CNN. And I want to get your thoughts. You can tweet me right now what you think. So CNN is, is covering um, this this unrest 
And the CNN reporter starts going off on Hillary Clinton, basically saying that she's got her own vulnerabilities. And then they just lose the feed. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, really, um, do you think they actually lost the feed in between this broadcast that CNN's been doing for, I don't know, a million times before and afterwards? Or is there somebody in the control room saying, she's saying what? What is she doing? No, 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 no. Cut her, 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 cut her. And then it cuts and the anchor picks it up. And I think that's an important question because if it was just a mistake and this happens in media all the time, then you know what it is what it is. But if it wasn't, if CNN was actually shutting down one of their reporters from criticizing Hillary Clinton, it speaks a lot to some of the deficiencies that we're having in the media. And one of the challenges that we have today, and I think this has really contributed to the public and contributed to the election cycles, is do we trust our media sources to deliver news in the most fairly and accurate way? Right? If, you, if, this, if you're asking yourself, do you think CNN did this on purpose, what does that say about what we think of CNN? What does that say of what we think about news sources? Do we think that news sources are sitting around going, hmm, we've got to, we have to make sure that there's an, an opinion here. And by the way, this is on both sides of the aisle. I'm not just saying this is happening only on CNN or only on Fox or only on anything. But when our news sources that deliver us news is suspect, acts in a way that makes us raise our eyebrows and say, hmm, I'm not sure if that was real or not. Was that done on purpose? Was the news... Was the information being taken from me because there's an agenda that is being done at the top? When that happens to us, we start to ask ourselves, well, then who's keeping them honest? I know who's keeping the politicians honest or not, but who's keeping the journalists and who's keeping the media honest? And when that breaks down, we have what we have right now, where what's being posted on a Facebook or being posted on a blog is as valuable to us as being posted in what was supposed to be the most trusted news source and news site in the country. Because if the media can't be honest with us, then in truth, who do we trust to make sure that we're getting our information? And once we lose that, once we lose that, then we, we revert back to a society that really doesn't know where the information is coming from. And that is going to impact our elections. It's going to impact our life. It's going to impact how we see people and how we trust people. The fact that Donald Trump was able to capitalize on this distrust of the media comes from a generation of people that deep down believe that to be true. If I would tell you that this would be happening to Donald Trump, would you believe me? Of course you wouldn't. If I told you this exact same thing happened and the reporter was saying, hey, Donald Trump has these vulnerabilities and the feed would go out. Would anybody here believe that CNN was covering for Donald Trump? No, but they would for Hillary. How come? It's because we look at media today and deep down know that there's bias in every single which way, which allows us less and less opportunity to figure out what is really happening, what is really going on and what is really behind the scenes. And our ability to do that, I think, is the, is the function of our society. This is a big deal that's going on right now. You know, we're a year out from what is the worst decision, I think, in the history of American, um, you know, foreign relations, which is the the Iran deal, 
where the government has basically gave Iran the ability to sort of stay under the radar for a few years so they can build their own bomb. And one of the hard parts about this deal is is all the stuff coming out right now, how the media was played and how we had the wrong information and how the Obama administration overplayed Iranian concessions and how underplayed United States concessions. And now a year later, what you're hearing coming out, by the way, if you're following this, is John Kerry and the media saying, hey, this is a good deal. Year one, things are great. You know, we're, we're, this is where we want them. We're not saying we're best friends, but this is where we wanted. And the deal made a lot of sense. And our ability to vote for that deal and our ability to push our candidates to that deal all impacted our news source that was being manipulated by the Obama administration that was being led by our, by, by our media agencies. And now we're one year later, and our greatest enemy, Iran, who is the greatest supporter of terrorism, just recently said, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani basically just said that they're threatening to withdraw from the deal. And if the United States doesn't live up to its commitments, commitments that we don't know about because they were underplayed by the administration, then Tehran would consider their conditions void. And that Iran was capable of quickly resuming uranium enrichment that they were supposed to stop doing. But in fact, now, Iran claims... They are more capable of enriching uranium in a way that they weren't capable even beforehand because they're continually keeping up with the program and their scientists can go right back into where they were. These are the people that we sat down on the table with and we told the world that we were able to achieve what couldn't have been achieved in war in diplomacy. And we believed it. We, 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 we should have because we didn't push our politicians enough to vote against it. We believed it. And they reported it. This is a huge breakthrough. And if you look at the media sources, by the way, they were all for it, especially the left wing, CNN and all MSNBC. They were all like, listen, this is how it is. We're, we're accomplishing. We're accomplishing. We're going to keep. We were able to accomplish it diplomatically, something we couldn't accomplish militarily. But you're one year later. And what do you got? You got I, Iran still trying to enrich uranium. You've got a stockpile of low enriched uranium there. You've got centrifuges that they weren't supposed to be doing doing. And worse, they're doing ballistic testing. They're still sending missiles over. All in, in if it's not in complete violation, but all pushing against the limits of the deal. Are we safer? No. Are we better off? No. All we are is weaker. All we've shown the world is that we're giving our greatest enemy, the enemy that is supporting the terrorism that we're watching on the news, more and more firepower, and the wool, in a way, has been pulled over our eyes during this entire process. Why? It's because we don't trust our media. And when, when there's a breakdown of that communication from the top to us, there's this internal feeling of like, mm, I don't know if I trust this. I feel like we've been misled a little bit. This is how you open up. And this is how you get to a place where people like Donald Trump can come through and say certain things and have hundreds and thousands and millions of people all cheer yes. This is how you have situations where governments can vote in governments that, that don't represent the people because they feel like we've been taken. They feel like there's some kind of conspiracy. They feel like there's some kind of like backdoor play where they're protecting certain people and not others, where certain politicians get a little bit more than others do. When you're in an environment like that, what happens next is breakdown, which is, I think, where we are right now. When we come back, we're going to sum up the show, some of the lessons that we've learned, some things we can take going forward, some things to look out for, and be able to sort of sort of put it all together and wrap it up. This is all coming up when you come back on the show. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. 
Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Charlie Arari here filling in for Buck. I hope everybody's having a great Friday. I hope you're going to have a great weekend. I just want to catch up and sort of summarize the show until now. Spoke a lot about, you know, the idea of ideology. Ideology is really important. And I want to just to make sure that, you know, we live a life where we are living by our ideology. You know, sometimes in life, this is what happens. There's threats that come at us, threats of other people's ideology that gets in our way. And what makes us great people is our ability to fight for things in life, not just to not lose. And that, I think, is something that's really important in terms of this war on terror. We're not just fighting to not die. Like, we're not just, like, hoping that someone doesn't blow up in our neighborhood. That's not the fight on terror. We have our own ideology. We believe in something. We stand for something. We live in a country that fought for something. And there's a great new uh, series out on Netflix called Turn. I don't know if you've seen that, which is the story of a spy um, for the Washington's army uh, during the war, the Revolutionary War. And I, I watch it and I think to myself, like, imagine if I was living then. I'd be so excited about fighting for America. Well, just because I'm living now, I shouldn't be any less excited about America. Nor should anybody. But it's not just America. It's the ability to understand that everything in life that's worth it is worth fighting for it. Right? Your marriage, your children, your career, your job, your dreams, your faith, your community, your parents. There are people in your life that's worth fighting for. And when threats come up against it, you have to double down in your ideology. When it, you get too tired or when, you, when someone says something you don't like or when it gets hard and all the threats that come at you from all over, you have to not just fight off the threats and still survive. You have to dig deep and double down on your ideology. You got to figure out why am I doing this for? What do I believe in? Because when you, when you double down on your ideology, you come back out stronger. That's the difference between winning the war on terror and not losing the war on terror. And right now, we're playing to not lose. And everybody knows that if you've got one team that wants to win, they always beat the team that just doesn't want to lose. But it goes further than that. We moved from the show out into the story of Donald Trump and Mike Pence and the new Republican Party. And i got to tell you something. One thing that we can take for Trump positively is his ability to change the rules. That's how life works sometimes. To his credit, sometimes you've got to change the rules. You've got to blow them up, do different things. And across the table were people that heard that voice that could have stopped them early on, could have stopped them. But it would have required them to dig into a place that they never went before and they just didn't. But in our lives, it's the same way. If we want to be great at life, we've got to change the rules sometimes. But we also got to listen to that voice. And many times in life, if you hear that voice, you know, listen to it enough times, it goes away and you lose your chance of making that major difference. But more, most importantly, maybe, or as importantly, maybe, is 
the ability to look around and to be careful about who we trust, the media, the politicians, the selling, all that stuff that's being sold at us all day. We have to be able to dig down and ask those questions. We've got to be more authentic. The Hillary Clinton is an incredible lesson that each of us have to learn, that here you have someone with everything, everything on paper to be the President of the United States. I mean everything. And nobody likes her because you can't trust her. In life, it's the same way. You don't always got to have the right answers. You don't always got to be right. And you, always, you don't always have to be perfect. But you know what you got to be? Authentic. And if we can fight for what we believe in, if we can try to break some of the rules so, or change the rules, if we can listen to that inner voice, if we can trust our guts and our instinct and not just follow along what they tell us, and if we can dig down and be more authentic, then maybe, just maybe, we can just go a little bit further to becoming the people that we're meant to be. That's really what it's all about, right? Everything around us is just lessons to become the people you're meant to be. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for the time. We'll give a shout-out to thanks to Buck for letting me sit in his chair. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Charlie Harari. Have a great weekend, everybody. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.